1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: After the Second World War, the defeat of fascism meant that all over Europe, Hitler statues were toppled and destroyed. After the collapse of communism, some statues of Stalin actually survived. Just a couple of years ago, Black Lives Matter protests led to the hauling down of statues of slaveholders and imperialists. For example, in the UK, a statue of a slaver and philanthropist Edward Colston was hurled into a harbour. So what are the rights and wrongs of toppling statues and what are the issues at stake? My guest today is Alex von Tunzelman and she's been thinking about that for her book Fallen Idols, 12 Statues That Made History. And uh, Alex, thanks for joining us and and you, you sort of uh, go through 12 statues in particular but also, you know, discuss the issue more generally. So can I just begin by asking you why are statues put up in the first place?
0: Well there's a variety of reasons for that Owen and so in some cases uh, statues are put up kind of by some sort of government or community effort But quite often what you find is that they say on them uh, that this has been raised by subscription of the community. But actually, if you look into the story behind it, there's really a sort of zealous individual who's quite often ended up just paying for it themselves. So, you know, there's sort of a variety of purposes. Normally they're put up to make some sort of political point or social point or moral point um so they're kind of really usually a piece of inspiring propaganda intentionally rather or intimidating propaganda in some situations rather than necessarily a kind of artistic endeavor you say in the book that every
2: culture does it which is interesting and quite surprising but you reckon that's right
0: Well, there's some form of statuary on every inhabited continent um, going back in history. But, of course, statuary does have different purposes. I mean, I differentiate between statuary and sculpture. Um, If you look at sort of forms of, you know, uh, human forms in art in terms of sculpture, yes, it exists on every continent. Um, But in terms of the kind of honorific portrait statues that we think of today when we're talking about it, then that kind of is something that is it exists in lots of cultures but is quite specific to certain movements within those. And can you draw that
2: distinction for us between statues and sculptures?
0: Well, sculpture tends to be made for art, whereas honorific portrait statues tend to be made for purposes of uh, propaganda or inspiration.
2: Right, but when they're pulled down, which we'll get onto, people often say don't do that because it is a work of art, don't they? So there is a sort of confusion there.
0: There is. I mean, and these lines are really blurred, you know, and I mean, some, there are honorific portrait statues that are fabulous works of art that are really important works of art, but there are quite a few. <laughs> there's an awful lot of them that are really bad art or, you know, total junk. So there's a kind of variation. I mean, none of these questions are particularly clear. I think one thing I'm really keen on is not lumping all statues in together and actually seeing that these cases are do you know do differentiate depend on depending on what the statues are who put them up why they put them up how people respond to them and of course to the inherent quality of the statue artistically and culturally you talk about in the book the great man or the great men theory
2: of history and even sort of say it's not much different if it's the great woman theory of history so tell us how that relates yeah where that comes from and, and how that relates to
0: statues Well, the great man theory of history was uh, expounded by Thomas Carlyle in the mid-19th century. And his idea really was that the whole of history was nothing but the biography of great men. He did say men quite deliberately. I mean, he did not include any women in his uh, description of this great man theory. And the idea was really that it was just sort of these very dynamic individuals either virtuous or in some cases not virtuous who sort of drove the whole of historical progress and really everybody else is sort of reduced to little sheep barring around and just following these great historical currents this was enormously influential in the Victorian era Um, and what it really kind of I think the Victorian kind of absolute fetish for putting statues up that began in the mid-19th century was very strongly influenced by it so the kind of mid-19th to early 20th century saw a phenomenon known as Statue Mania, when really hundreds of statues suddenly went up in most sort of European capitals and also across North America and also in the sort of colonial possessions of a lot of those European countries in places like Delhi and Bombay at the time as well. And there was a sort of you know absolute wealth of them to the point that the artist Edgar Degas said you had to start putting barbed wire up around the edges of parks to stop sculptors from depositing their statues therein so almost as if they were sort of dogs messing up the environment and these really were mostly statues again of these great men the idea of these great virtuous individuals that were driving history and so they were usually supposed to be some sort of inspiring figure and you know statues are sort of often previously being put up of, say, kings or military leaders, but suddenly we also had sort of inventors and social reformers and all sorts of figures that the Victorians admired for various reasons. And then rapidly what you find is that that starts to transition into something with a very distinctive political bent in different places. So in the early 20th century in the US, for instance, there was a huge kind of, you know, Sort of wave of putting up statues commemorating Confederate leaders. And of course, this is a very, very long time after uh, the Civil War in the United States. It was really sort of between 1900 and 1920 and very much coinciding with the period of Jim Crow laws where racial segregation was being reimposed and reified across the southern United States. And so at that time, those statues were being put up really to kind of, you know, deliberately and, and in some cases in New Orleans explicitly to shore up the cause of white supremacy those were the words they used so statues quickly started having a political purpose and then of course as we go further into the 20th century we see you know that they were very much adopted by dictators and tyrants um, across the world so you mentioned um, the Nazis and, uh, and the, the Soviets particularly Stalin put up thousands of statues
2: One of the points about having so many statues is that they become strangely invisible.
0: Yes, I mean, the Austrian writer Robert Musel said there's nothing in this world so invisible as a monument and and you have a certain amount of sympathy with him. I've heard some writers such as Gary Young express that putting up a statue is a great way to forget somebody. I mean... When somebody is turned into a symbol by a statue, their real history is kind of flattened and they're just raised really as a as a figure for uncritical worship. And that obviously has the effect really of sort of removing all nuance and complexity from discussions about them. Well, let's get on to tearing them down.
2: It is quite a a powerful thing to do. I'm not quite sure why, perhaps you can help explain that for us, but it's expressed in, in a poem which you have at the beginning of your book, Ozymandias. So you've kindly said you'd read that uh, for it. So why don't, you, why don't you do that?
0: Yes, I'm afraid your listeners can listen to my terrible poetry reading, but uh, here we go. Yes, Ozymandias by Shelley. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculpture well these passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear, my name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains, round the decay of that colossal wreck Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away.
2: So why did you put that at the beginning of the book?
0: Well, Shelley expresses there really what sort of happens when statues are put up and come down. So in his poem, Ozymandias, an Egyptian pharaoh has put up this magnificent, huge statue, declaring himself king of kings. Look upon my works, ye mighty in despair. And of course, over time, what has happened over the course of thousands of years, this statue has broken and... You know, sunken into the desert and and really there's a sort of, you know, intense kind of pathos to this kind of statue that has, has actually kind of fallen apart and been destroyed. That there's a sort of real resonance to how that history passes and how the most mighty man in the world can be reduced really to sort of shattered fragments by the passage of time. And I think this has great kind of, you know, resonance when we look at statues today. And certainly that you very often find that statues which are put up by, should we say, leaders like Stalin become, you know, they're put up as very, very powerful symbols of power, of oversight, of, you know, intrusion. Big Brother watching you as this huge Stalin goes up in your city. And then, of course, when you find, for instance, in Budapest in 1956, when this huge Stalin statue was knocked down that actually that itself becomes an even more powerful symbol. The response to the symbol is then, you know, a sort of shattered face of Stalin, his head turned into a lavatory, um, you know, and sort of his broken body lying on the street. That This is an incredibly powerful gesture of refutation.
2: Now, when it comes to pulling them down, I think the you know, the important starting point is that there are some statues that everyone would agree should be pulled down, right? So... Hitler after the Second World War, and you use the example of Jimmy Savile. I think you'd better just tell everyone who he was. And it was only one statue, but everyone agreed that should be torn down. Why don't you just remind us of Jimmy Savile?
0: Well, I mean, I wouldn't want to go into too much detail to remind you, but he was a British television presenter um, and radio presenter. And after his death, um, it emerged that he had been a, a sort of really prolific abuser of children. Um prior to that, he'd been rather lauded. um he'd been sort of you know knighted uh, despite actually advice that was given against that to Margaret Thatcher's government. He was in fact, knighted. Um, he was really welcomed by the establishment and the royals and you know politicians and so forth. And this statue was put up of him in Glasgow outside a leisure centre. I mean, not a particularly good statue, but there it was. But of course, when these stories came out, There was really no discussion at all about whether this statue should go up and stay up or come down or, you know, whether we were erasing history or whether we were, you know, destroying art or any of this stuff. The statue was simply removed because I think everybody understood that really to leave it up would be just a grotesque insult to his victims. So in certain cases like that, the moral case seems extremely clear to people. Um, But the interesting thing is when we get into historical discussions, it starts to reveal a lot more about perhaps people's own opinions, their own prejudices and their own likes and dislikes. That's right.
2: I mean, because it is shocking to many in the West that some Stalin statues remained up uh, and yet they did. So can you just talk us through that? Why did they remain up? Where and why?
0: Well, not very many remained up. And partly a lot of the reason that a lot of statues came down was actually the Soviets themselves during the de-Stalinisation period. They actually took down, under Nikita Khrushchev, they took down a lot of Stalin statues to really try to get away from his cult of personality. You know, that was something that very much he'd established. And the Khrushchev administration was really keen to actually refute that and, and get rid of that. So a lot of them came down in that respect, but they have some of them extraordinarily have started going up again. There are various places in the world where silent statues have gone up again in the former, former Soviet Union. And often that's really connected with a sort of with how World War II is seen in those places. So World War II is known in Russia as the Great Patriotic War. And there has been a kind of rehabilitation of Stalin as a leader there, you know, who is seen as having defeated Hitler and the Nazis um, and very much sort of turned the tide of that war. So there are places where Stalin is still revered uh, from that point of view. I mean, you know, he comes out as really quite popular in opinion polls in Russia. Uh, So unsurprisingly, perhaps in that context, his statues have gone up again in certain places, although in many cases they have then been attacked or in one case, blown up by protesters. So you can definitely see that it's not, you know, a kind of not very simplistic. It's definitely a kind of contested history, should we say. And one even went up a few years ago in Bedford, Virginia, in the United States, um, a bust of Stalin. And that went up as part of a series of busts of Allied war leaders. So they had Truman, Roosevelt, um, Churchill and then Stalin. And even though they had a plaque on that bust saying, you know, that Stalin had been involved in the murder of millions of people and, you know, all of this. It caused enormous controversy among local residents, a great deal of unhappiness, and actually it had to be taken down very quickly and it has not been seen again.
2: So there's a sort of parallel with Churchill there, isn't there? Because, you know, Churchill, the great war leader, as far as many Brits, Brits and Americans are concerned, and yet also criticised and, yeah, you know, his statues uh, being defaced because... People say he was racist. So there's a contested history there. Stalin, great war leader and mass murderer. And in both cases,
0: it's leading to these arguments. Yes, I mean, I think Churchill is really a kind of, you know, for a lot of British people is kind of such a sort of sacred figure. But there is definitely a kind of, should we say, a controversy brewing over that. I think it's already started. And I think that conversation will certainly continue probably in a very heated way. And that's partly because, of course, a lot of people from, Other parts of the world, I mean, you know, one might name Ireland and India as obvious places, actually see Churchill very differently from the sort of very heroic view that has now become common in Britain. I mean, of course, if you actually go back to World War II and look at what Britons thought at the time, there was actually a real diversity of opinion on Churchill. And you know, the historian Richard Toy has pointed out that actually the reaction to his speeches was far from universal adoration. In fact, a lot of people really criticized them at the time. And of course, we know that he lost the election after the war. But now that he's sort of been turned into this symbol of Britishness, he's become something else. And I think that's why now it's so contested that people at the time might well have had a much more complicated, nuanced opinion and a range of opinions on Churchill. But now that he's become this kind of symbol of Britain, then that discussion has moved on a little bit. And now it becomes really about, you know, Whether It becomes a sort of cultural discussion about whether you love Britain or hate Britain. That's how it's often framed, which, of course, isn't the discussion at all. You can have a a discussion, a sort of intelligent, critical discussion about Churchill without in any way changing your feelings of patriotism or otherwise. So to summarise
2: what you're saying, putting them
0: up is very often
2: political in some way. And tearing them down is very often political in some way. And now we get on to the arguments against uh, pulling them down and many of those arguments you don't like. So let's just run through them. I mean, one of the points made by people who say don't tear down statues is you're erasing history. I think Boris Johnson, the British prime minister, used the phrase you're editing history. Uh, how good an argument is that?
0: I mean, it's a really poor argument. Um because statues aren't history I mean you know I'm a historian all us historians work we're not sitting there in our offices chipping away at statues that's not how we work at all you know history is contained in documents and archives and you know then it's analysed in books and documentaries and all sorts of ways and you know in fact and fiction and and I mean, statues are a form of historical storytelling, but they're certainly not history. Um, they're very largely propaganda. I certainly think Boris Johnson, for instance, would not make the argument that it was erasing history to take down a Stalin statue um, or to take down busts of Hitler after World War Two. I think he would not make that argument about those things, and therefore that is not an argument about statues. It's an ar- what his point is, is that he's uncomfortable with people questioning this specific history.
2: Right, because that was in the context of... Uh- Colston wasn't it why don't you just talk us through the Colston case which was so controversial here in the UK
0: well the Edward Colston case is so complicated and so fascinating so Colston was um Basically, he was deputy governor for a while of the Royal African Company. Now, that was the company set up by the British monarchy, really, to uh, to have a monopoly on the slave trade in the early years of that trade. So Colston was very, very high up in that. As I say, he was deputy governor, and you can think of that sort of as CEO because the king was the governor and obviously not really an executive officer. Um, So he ran that. He also had shares in it. Um, He participated for many years in slave trading, made a huge amount of money. Um, and then he was a great. He used that money for uh, for a lot of philanthropy in Bristol. He didn't have any children, um, and he didn't marry. So instead, he sort of endowed lots of institutions and schools and so forth. Um, so he was seen as this very great philanthropist. But what happened with his statue? So he he died um, very early in the eighteenth century, and then in eighteen ninety five. So sort of one hundred and seventy plus years later. A Bristol merchant called James Arrowsmith um, put up this statue of Edward Colston. And really, this is a case I was talking about before, about how it's often zealous individuals that put up a statue. And he tried to raise the money through public collection. And really, that came to almost nothing. Basically, probably had to pretty much pay for it himself in the end. Um, And the reason he put up that statue of Colston was because at that time, there was a great anxiety about the rise of socialism. Aria Smith was very anxious about that too. and it was, So this was an attempt to reassert the idea that you didn't need socialism. What you could have was this sort of more, rather more paternalistic culture of you know philanthropy by great men and that this would be the better way forward for a society um, and for a community like Bristol. Um, now, of course, that was ahistorical completely because Edward Colston lived long before the word socialism had ever been heard and would have had absolutely no idea what any of this meant. But this was a use of Colston for those ends. But the fascinating thing is when that statue was put up, the fact that Colston was a slave trader was very problematic because by that point, the late 19th century, the British Empire no longer traded in slaves, had banned that a long time before, and in fact had reinvented itself really as the world's premier anti-slavery force. That was now sort of almost articulated sometimes as the point of the British Empire was to fight slavery. So it couldn't be mentioned that Edward Colston was a slave trader. In fact, if anything, that history had to be erased to put the statue up. So when it was dedicated, there was no mention of his slave trading at all, apart from one tiny aside by the mayor of Bristol during the dedication speech, where he said that some of Colston's trade was with the West Indies. So I suppose if you were listening really hard and thinking, you might have figured out what that meant, but but no real clue on that front. Um, so this statue was put up you know, with no recognition of that at all. And actually, it was only sort of in the 1920s that a critical biography of Colston was published by by a reverend in Bristol, which started to bring back that story of slave trading. And that's really when a conversation started about, hold on, you know, is Colston really this great hero that we in Bristol have sort of cracked him up to be in very, very recent history? Uh, So that was in the 1920s. So really, it then took 100 years to get to the point where the statue was taken down. It's a very long historical progress of discussion. Second argument that you don't like
2: which I think many people would quite like, is, <laughs> is, is you know, you can't judge people by today's standards, people from the past by today's standards. So people arguing against statues being pulled down would say, look, he was a man of his time. It's, it's, it's wrong to judge someone by today's standards. Therefore, you can't tear down that statue on the grounds that their views have become unfashionable.
0: It's an argument. The problem is this argument erases the history of statues and misunderstands, shall we say, the history of statues and how they've been put up and why. I mean, of course, as historians, now, when we look at historical figures, you know, very controversial ones, such as Churchill or, you know, Cecil Rhodes or anything, of course, historians are attempting to create a nuanced picture with, you know, lots of kind of asking much more about how and why than whether this is a good or bad person or anything like that. You know, we're not really looking to make a moral judgment. We're looking to understand why certain historical things have happened and why certain people have done them and of course that's a nuanced picture but here we come back again to statues aren't history Um, statues are an object in public space that has been uncritically raised for public approval and now we know that because we all understand the phrase to put someone on a pedestal now if you put someone on a pedestal that doesn't mean you're going to have a nuanced discussion about them Um, it means that you're raising them for uncritical worship so when you put a statue up that's the point at which you're actually, the person who puts that statue up is setting an absolute absurd standard for any human being to live up to. They're saying that this person is basically a saint or a demigod. Now, of course, people will push back against that. That's quite normal. And where statues are standing now, it's not a question of saying, oh, well, you know, maybe they did good things or bad things. It's people saying quite reasonably, raising this person for worship is not appropriate it may never be appropriate in any case but it's certainly true that people are having you know a very different conversation about that and i also have a problem with the idea that so and so you know whoever it was was a man of his time in that i think it makes a huge and quite wrong assumption about history times don't have opinions people do and if you look at someone say like Cecil Rhodes It's completely absurd to say Cecil Rhodes was a man of his time. He was, I mean, actually something that his critics and his fans agree on is that he was completely exceptional within his own time. He was far outside the norm. Rhodes was somebody whose opinions on race, for instance, were extraordinarily extreme, even by the standards of other white men of his time. Um, And certainly his actions were also extraordinary and extreme and um, so if, if you're talking about him as sort of some sort of standard bearer of his time he certainly wasn't and he was very very widely criticized by many of his contemporaries and if we sort of say that you know someone for instance if we go further back in history and look at the slave trade again and say well you know everybody believed in slavery back then this was normal there's a very interesting question of who we're including in everybody there um, because I certainly think you could show that for instance enslaved people themselves very much did not agree with the slave trade. So why are they not included in this standard of the time? We also have no idea, in fact, what many working class people or women or many groups in society thought about slavery. And we know that even among the wealthy white men who provide the majority of historical documents that we now have access to, that in fact there was great discussion with between them throughout about whether the slave trade was acceptable. This was highly contested, even if you go back to the earliest days of it. There were always people debating whether this was moral or acceptable. So, again, this is a real flattening of history. If we're going to say someone was a man of his time and we can't judge him by by present standards, I mean, of course, you know, in historical terms, we'll try to some st- understand somebody on their own terms, but a statue isn't doing that. A statue is saying, we like this person now. It's A statue is for the present, not for the past. So people have a right to decide what stands in their towns and whether that really does reflect them.
1: This episode is brought to you by Sax.com. At sax.com, it's easy to find your new vibe. Dive into the Western trend with gold cowboy boots from Stott or go full 90s throwback with platforms from Prada. You can shop for everything on your agenda. Whether it's a breezy Zimmerman dress for a garden party or a bright Chloe blazer for brunch, find inspiration for your new vibe every day at sax.com.
2: Reflect them today. And when you give the example of, yeah, you know, what about slaves? What did they think about uh, slavers? Does that mean that globalization has had an effect on this? Because as the world has got smaller and different communities have interacted more, different parts of the world have, Yeah, join the conversation, the global conversation, that it's no longer possible just to have one society venerating a certain amount of people without taking into account the views of people elsewhere in the world?
0: Yes, I certainly think so. And I think it's quite enheartening, actually, to see that, um, you know, that actually you can now have these conversations quite globally, that people can push back on this sort of thing. And I mean, you know, that there will be moments when, of course, that is uncomfortable because certain nations have built up a certain picture of their particular national myths and leaders and so forth. Other nations will have very, very different views. Um, But I think it's quite healthy to have that sort of debate and to bring multiple views into the discussion. Sure. It's interesting with the
2: Cecil Rhodes case, isn't it? Because I think I'm right in saying that his statue in Cape Town was taken down in 2015, but the ones in Oxford University or one in Oxford University remains up. So what what does that say about, you know,
0: South Africa and the UK? Well, very different things, absolutely. And it's been very interesting watching the progress of those two statues. So the one you mentioning at the University of Cape Town was this kind of seated statue of Rhodes outdoors, and it was very kind of prominent on campus. And when the Rhodes Must Fall campaign began there, um, actually the University of Cape Town responded incredibly quickly. um, And there was, you know, there wasn't much need to discuss sort of whether Rhodes was good or bad it was more is this an appropriate symbol for us now and very quickly it was concluded no it is not an appropriate symbol for us now and kind of you know now a kind of South Africa that is obviously moving forward into a very different period and actually it only took a month for the authorities to agree with that and remove that statue um, and it was very very quick achievement. In Oxford it's been a very different experience so there have been kind of Several waves now of sort of roads must fall activism, um, you know, in around 2015, straight after the South Africa one, and then again very recently, kind of in the last couple of years, um, during the pandemic, there were yet more protests about this. And it's been much more complicated because here it seems that there is still much more discussion about, you know, how we can view much more squeamishness, shall we say about how we view Cecil Rhodes. But I think what's quite interesting is that we. Discuss Cecil Rhodes hardly ever in this country, apart from in the context of his statue. You know, his, the history of what Rhodes did in Africa and, you know, his, his political career and his private enterprise and all of this is not on school curriculums. It's not being discussed at all. And there haven't been really any very prominent recent biographies of him or biopics, not for many, many years. Um, and so really the only discussion of him is around this statue. And I feel like it's been very much co-opted into a sort of culture wars conversation. So there are, you know, you read these sort of defences of him and you realise that actually nobody in this conversation is terribly informed really about who he was anyway. So the conversation often ends up being kind of pretty empty um, because this is the only way in which he's discussed at all. I mean, there is another interesting aspect to Rhodes
2: in that quite a few prominent world leaders benefited from his foundation, didn't they? So I know Bill Clinton was a Rhodes scholar at, at Oxford, doesn't he? And I think there are other others, and certainly are in, in Commonwealth countries. So you know, it, it was a route to influence through getting that Cecil Rhodes Scholarship in in Oxford University.
0: Absolutely, I mean, Rhodes left a huge amount of money to Oxford University and to the uh, Rhodes Trust, and which runs these Rhodes scholarships to Oxford University for uh, well he in, initially Rhodes intended them for, what he called young colonists. So, you know. His intent in his will was quite clearly towards uh, young white men who were from the colonies to come back to learn in Oxford, but of course that has been extended uh, far beyond that now. And in fact, you know, Rhodes scholarships are now all sorts of people from the Commonwealth and you know, sort of former uh, Rhodes, various Rhodes territories uh, come to the UK, and it's much more diverse. But I think a lot of the Rhodes Trust actually has had a very interesting journey itself, and. I think it's been really quite progressive and interesting in terms of how it sees Rhodes' legacy. I think it's highly conscious, really, that now part of its job is to make reparations because Rhodes extracted so much wealth from Southern Africa and that really using that wealth to try now to find ways to enrich Southern Africa and you know peoples from there is is a form as they see it of reparations. And I mean that's also the truth behind the Mandela Rhodes Foundation, this sort of extraordinary foundation that Nelson Mandela set up with the intentionally provocative name of Rhodes and you know attached to it, was really to kind of, you know, to look at ways that you could really address that history and Really, you know, make reparations for some of Rhodes's extractions.
2: We've got two more of your uh, arguments you identified as being used by those who want to keep statues up. A slippery slope. Take one statue down, and where does it lead? They're all going down.
0: Yes, I mean, this is a sort of common fear about it, and my response to this largely is that's fine. Um, I mean, you know, People are allowed to ask questions about any historical figure they want or any statue they want. They don't have to keep any of them up. They're perfectly welcome to take them all down. I mean, if we had no statues, I think we would be really no, be- no worse off as societies. They don't really perform much function. And um, those that are artistically interesting could, of course, be preserved. But it doesn't matter if people want to ask questions about more historical figures um, I don't think that would be a problem at all but also we can see that that fear in some ways I think is a bit hyped up I mean so for instance around um, you know in in 2020 when statues started being taken down in the UK um, and Edward Colston's statue was sort of pulled down by a group of people and thrown into the harbour in Bristol Um, There was a great fear that this was just—you know—this will start happening left, right, and centre. You know, people will just attack all statues now. This will—they'll all be pulled down. And actually, that was the only one in that period that was pulled down by members of the public. Um, Other statues were taken down at that time, but they were taken down by the relevant authorities, so by museums, for instance, that displayed them, and so on. So, in fact, it didn't cause a contagion. Um, It it really was just the one.
2: I, I presume the people who brought down. The Colston statue in Bristol wouldn't say they were a mob, but, but they, they weren't a committee, you know. And there is another argument that, you know, this is a legal matter. It's public property. Uh, they sh- if they're going to be brought down, it should be through a democratic process. Uh, some kind of uh, general uh, gathering of opinions should be done and that a decision should be made through through a legitimate democratic process rather than people on the street just deciding to do it. What do you think of that argument?
0: Well I think a lot of people are more sympathetic to that argument because that seems sort of reasonable and balanced and I mean I agree that it is. I think that would be the ideal, would very much be that. I'm very much in favour of um, communities making their own reasoned decisions on whether they would like to keep their statues they have, get rid of them, commission new monuments or whatever they would you know prefer i think it should be up to the community in each question but the problem with the argument is that it often again is quite ignorant of what has actually happened so for instance this was thrown at the people in bristol who pulled that statue down a lot and of course they four protesters did undergo a trial um, and were actually acquitted um, of any offenses regarding that statue Um, but i do think that the um you know, the problem with that process in Bristol, as I said before we were talking about Edward Colston, um, that discussion about Colston had been going on for 100 years and the discussion specifically about the statue had been going on for several decades as well and there had been endless efforts to take that statue down through democratic process and, you know, with kind of the city of Bristol and the council and so on all involved. And there had been so much obstruction of that process, partly by various specific local councillors and so on but also by at that time the society of merchant venturers which was sort of a colston legacy society which saw themselves as very much defending his legacy Um, and there were endless attempts to do things like put a plaque up which would be more explanatory on the statue and you know alter it in some way and all of these attempts were stymied again and again by really quite undemocratic lobbying measures so i think it's very difficult when you have a process That has been so drawn out and where discussion has been shut down again and again undemocratically to then say, well, you know, this just has to be accepted, this, you know, unfunctional process. I think there were hundreds of opportunities for the city of Bristol to do something about that statue in the 30 odd years before it was pulled down in a kind of more democratic way and those were obstructed so i'm all for actually transparent public processes and all of that but i think they have to be transparent they have to be efficient they have to work and um, they have to produce some kind of result and actually satisfy the community to some extent because if they're just ways of actually not having the conversation and obstructing the conversation then that is not democracy
2: well, as, as a public intellectual who's written a book on this subject, I think it's extremely likely that if there was a committee formed, you'd be on it.
0: So, <laughs> oh, God, what have I done?
2: <laughs> so, so, so let me ask you, if you were on that committee, have you come up in your own mind with a formulation which would guide people as to what factors to take into account when deciding whether a statue should be pulled down or not and i know you're going to say it depends on each particular community and each context and each time period but still can you think at a quite an abstract level maybe of what factors what criteria should be used to make these judgments
0: yeah i can a bit actually and i mean yes of course i think it depends on each case but i do think some questions that i would personally begin by asking and i would encourage any such committee or community to begin by asking are really to look at the history of that particular statue. Who put it up and why did they put it up? You know, Why did it go up in the first place? What was the intention? Quite often it's very different from what you think. Um, I would also encourage them to look at what that statue has become and how it's been used. So one controversy around Confederate statues in the US is that they have actually often become rallying points for the Ku Klux Klan and for you know some really unpleasant groups in society. Now that in and of itself... Makes them very problematic and makes them quite dangerous in a, in an environment in a community setting. So that's a real consideration: is what they've come to mean, which again might be something quite different from the intention in some cases of what they originally meant. You know, have they become sites where violence occurs or there is danger to other members of the community? Because that's a serious consideration in some of these cases. Um, I would encourage them to look as well at the statue and and ask questions about: is this statue? Of artistic merit Um, because sometimes they are and sometimes they really really aren't and and I think that's a reasonable factor you know does this make our landscape and our city more beautiful does it enhance it or actually is it you know morally or indeed aesthetically ugly and unattractive undistinguished because in some cases you know there are possibilities of, of doing something with the statue such as moving it to a different location which may change the meaning, may, uh, may actually kind of be an acceptable solution. And I would also encourage that. I would say if we're going to talk about, um, you know, okay, we, we've decided that this statue is a problem for whatever reason, then I think you can look at a range of solutions to that problem. There's lots of creative solutions. You know, you can, in some cases, statue probably should simply be removed if it's just really not of merit and really is not kind of, you know, cohering or delighting the community. But I think there are also cases where a statue can be altered in really fascinating ways. And there's some wonderful creative examples of this around the world. Um, so sometimes statues are altered with, by having lights projected onto them with uh, with different kind of, you know, giving them a different meaning or some there's been yarn bombing where various things are knitted around statues. So actually this was once done to Edward Colston's statue when it was still up in Bristol as somebody knitted a bright red ball and chain around its foot, which, you know, was a very clever artistic intervention. And there are always also ways in which statues have been draped in clothing or decorated or other statues have been added nearby or all sorts of, you know, there are all sorts of creative ways that you could potentially alter a statue, let, let some artists have a go at it. And, you know, are there ways to transform it in interesting ways or to hand this over to a different sort of public art project that might enrich it? So, you so see, I think there's lots of questions you could begin by asking yeah um, I think you're on the committee I think you just <laughs> have I got the job you got the
2: job yeah. oh no <laughs> but you mentioned they're sort of relocating or reimagining or doing things to statues and you had a couple of examples in the book Nkrumah in Ghana and Struzna in Paraguay so choose your favorite and of those two and tell us about that.
0: Oh gosh they're both so amazing well Struzner in Paraguay so there was a statue of Alfredo Struzner the dictator of Paraguay that uh, an artist dealt with by uh, he smashed it up into little pieces and then squished it between two blocks of concrete so it now looks like the dictator is sort of being crushed Uh, so now that can stand as a memorial to his victims rather than to the dictator himself and the Kwame Nkrumah one which is in uh, Accra in Ghana uh, was actually during the coup that ousted it, it was beheaded, that statue's head was cut off. Uh, and the head was actually taken away by a member of the public and hidden for many years and then returned. And now it is displayed um, in in Accra with the headless statue is displayed on a plinth and next to it is a plinth with just the head on it. And I think that's a really clever way of sort of memorialising not only Nkrumah, but also sort of remembering the coup that ousted him, remembering the violence that followed. So, you know, you can actually find that in fact a destroyed statue like that may tell a more interesting and complex story than the intact statue would have.
2: Cultural wars aren't new, but they are perhaps more intense now in the West anyway than they have been in, in in let's say the post-war period, does that mean that when we look to the future of this issue, there will be more statues toppled?
0: I think you're going to expect that going forward, every generation is going to have new questions about the history it's been told. And sometimes that will take the form of attacking symbols and monuments. Um sometimes it will take totally different forms. I think one of the reasons that statues are such a focus now is that they do date back to this sort of 19th, late 19th, early 20th century period of kind of great men and then of, you know, phenomenons like the Confederacy in the US or imperialism, colonialism, and so on, which are, you know, legacies that people feel very much that they're dealing with now. And those, it's kind of a crucial point, it sort of might seem like an obvious point, but actually it's quite important that regimes that put up a lot of statues are often you know people who react against them do react by taking those statues down because they understand that those statues were important to those regimes so I do think that generations will challenge the history that has been told by the generations that come before them and I think that's absolutely right and appropriate so I would welcome any historical discussion and I'm delighted really that this question of statues has actually seems to have triggered a lot of people to get more interested and more involved in history absolutely fantastic let's use that wonderful moment and um hope that people can learn more about the real figures behind these statues they're often much more interesting than the statues would lead you to believe.
2: Thank you so much Alex von Tunzelman very interesting book and very interesting discussion thanks.
0: Thank you.